Welcome back to Outside the System. My guest today is Cam Wise. Cam is building something pretty unique. He's bringing back the World's Fair. The World's Fair is a historical exhibition that took place in the 18 and 1900s, where nations and companies showcased the latest technology and visions for what the future could hold. It was by definition an ambitious and optimistic place. By bringing back the World's Fair by 2030, Cam is trying to recreate that sense of hope and optimism in the future, something we desperately need today. I think you'll really enjoy this one, and I hope you walk away as inspired about the future of humanity as I did. Let's get to it. Cam, great to have you on Outside the System. Thanks, Neil. No, I'm, you know, everyone always says, oh, I'm so excited to be here. But we've, uh, we've been trading notes for, for a while to get something on, on the books here, and, and here we are. So I'm excited to jam, yeah. <laughs> How did we first meet? Made you think? I think so. Or it's Twitter. I think, I think Twitter is probably a lot of the overlap. I th- I'm trying to remember how I, I think made you think was kind of like kind of looped into to you and Nat, but I'm trying to remember like where, th- where I like pathed into there. I think it was, it was actually probably, I, I read some of Sebastian Marshall's work. He had that, that one essay on um, the things we, it's like the million dollar question. And then I was like, Hmm, this guy's interesting. And then listen to his podcast with Nat, and then I think that led to to made you think. I don't know, man. The internet, the internet's weird. Like, yeah, how the algorithm circle uh, surface things. You know how how we get on each other's radars. I don't know. It's crazy. I hope I I like wonder if one day there'll be like some kind of software that can dig through all your past history. I mean, the NSA's got to have it, right? Like all your past activity, and they can like dig up, and you can like play around with it, and you know, it's like that Google Maps feature that's super creepy, but shows you everywhere that you've been. <laughs> and at the same like it's like super cool but at the same time you're like wait a minute <laughs> and i think like our relationship with technology sh- should be such that like these things like oh yeah this i can look at all of my past interactions that should be a, a good thing but a cool because thing, of like yeah. nef- nefarious actors we're like wait a minute like who's who's tracking me like or what's who going else on has access to this who like, else has access to this like yeah i think the the bigger question is like who else can infer things from this that I don't even know yet, right? Like, that's kind of like the freaky thing about it. I mean, the the all-time famous, I don't even know if it's true, but it's maybe it's like an urban legend type story is like when Target started sending like the pregnancy ads to that girl who like didn't even know she was pregnant yet. It's like, that's one of those things where, you know, it's like, okay, we have access to the same data, but like yeah, a company or a government could have access to an algorithm or some, some type of... Uh, well, maybe more now than at that time, but like an AI software that would help them make inferences from this data that I would never even be able to make myself. So they know more about me than me. Which is awful. And like, it's scary, but it's also- It could be great. No, it could also be great, right? It's like, hey, they might know I'm sick before I'm sick or like they might know that like I need to do this before I need to do it. And so there's there's like two paths of it. There's like the dystopian path and the utopian path and it's not going to go in either one. It's going to go somewhere, somewhere in the middle. And, but now we're diving too much into our conversation before like really introducing it because I think this is core to what we're going to talk about today. Yes. In- introduce me to my, my washer. I don't know if you can hear the beep in the back. I'm going to turn this thing off. Okay. So the big thing that you're working on these days is the World's Fair, which is, it sounds familiar to anybody listening. It's uh, sort of the rowback or reference to the original World's Fair. And Cam, I'm, I think you're way better to introduce that, the historical World's Fair than I am. I just know that I had read a lot about it as a kid in different, you know, different books. And like, I would always read these like random nonfiction books or like 
I don't know, like these little fact like history books, as lame as that makes me sound. Um, but I remember they'd always like bring up the World's Fair and I'd always be like, oh, that sounds cool. I wonder like, where is the World's Fair now? Like, I wonder, is it just not in the US and I haven't heard of it or does it just not exist? So yeah, what is the World's Fair and uh, like historically and what happened to it? The simplest kind of definition is like the World's Fair is a, is a type of mega event, like, like the Olympics or like the World's Cup. That runs for about six months, is hosted on a thousand plus acres, and is focused on immersing people or showcasing kind of technologies and industry. The thing that people may be most familiar with now is the like the Stark Expo from from the Iron Man two movie. You know, they're at the they're at the expo. They're showing Tony Stark showing off all the all the latest and greatest, and you have tons of people there who are excited to be introduced to this like possible future. The way that I like I like to think about this is like World's Fairs are like these events run by cities, a lot of the times for economic development. So if you look on the Wikipedia page, you have dozens of these things have been run in cities like Spokane and San Antonio or in Brussels and in Paris, uh, New York and Chicago. But the ones that we kind of, everyone has this kind of nostalgia for some of these fairs. They think about, you know, you read in the Devil in the White City, how electricity was debuted at the, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Or, you know, people saw the, the Ford Model T in the assembly line for the first time at the 1915 San Francisco World's Fair. There's this interesting phenomenon where, you know, you have these great fairs of the past that we all remember and a bunch of the ones that we don't. And so I like to think about this as like, what made these, these, like, these great fairs, the ones that everyone nostalgically remembers so great? And it all comes down to this like feeling for the future. It's like this, this feeling of hope in awe and optimism that is like embodied in a physical place. And like, to me, that's what the world's fair is. It's like this physical space that imbues you with a sense of like anything is possible. And there are only a few, few fairs that have, have managed to do this. And it's, it's quite unfortunate because this is what we need now more than ever is this, this hope for the future. Absolutely. I would say the only place that I've ever felt that and maybe two places, one is an absolute. And the second one is a maybe, the first one is is uh, Epcot at Disney World. It makes me feel that way. I know you have a lot of thoughts about that, so we will we'll dive in. But the second place, and this is more like a, a maybe because I don't think it quite gives that. It almost actually is. It's like both hopeful, but also like kind of sad at the same time is the Air and Space Museum in D.C. Because you feel like, OK, yeah, look at all this great stuff that we did. But then it also makes you feel a little bit sad with like, what, what, what happened, right? Like we were doing all this. What, what changed? So, yeah, I guess like, do you have thoughts about those two places? Have you, I mean, I know Epcot's something we've talked about before. So I'd love to get into your, your thoughts on that and Disney in general. That's my favorite, favorite topic is, is Disney and Epcot. Because I think people, people don't appreciate how impactful or how important Walt Disney was as an individual over the last, you know, century. So I would argue that the, the reason that we went to the moon was actually because of Walt Disney. This is a, this is a crazy, crazy thing to say. So here's the situation. You had, you had Walt Disney, who was, you know, he, he was a big, big science fiction fan. You know, he Robert, read Robert Heinlein, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov. He was kind of a big fan of, of science fiction. And when he was designing Disneyland, he's like, we want to do Tomorrowland, which is going to kind of represent kind of human exploration space, get people excited about exploring the galaxy. And as part of the, the, the rollout or the marketing for Disneyland, um, they hosted the show on ABC. 
where every week Walt Disney would, would come on to the television and he would talk to people about the progress they're making at Disneyland. And they would show like little films about some of the concepts that, that they would explore at the park. Right. And one of them was this film called Man in Space. Right. You can go on Disney Plus, you can go on YouTube and you can you can watch this. It's about 45 minutes long. And it showcases like what does like human space exploration look like? Why is this exciting? Why is this cool? And, and Disney hired Warner von Braun, the infamous, you know, Nazi rocket scientist to like help shape the narrative because von Braun wanted, you know, humans to go into space as well. And it was this, this film that debuted to, to millions of people on TV in the in like 54, 1954, that then inspired um, President Eisenhower to help set up kind of or formalize NASA. Because the thing went public, Eisenhower saw it, and he calls Walt Disney, says, Walt, like, I want to show this to my staff, to my generals. And so he has Walt Disney send him the raw prints. It gets sent to the White House and all of the Eisenhower administration like watches this film about man in space. They talk about it. And then not too long after, you know, NASA, NASA is founded. And then the foundation is laid so that when JFK comes into office, uh, comes into office, he can he can go to Rice and give his, his famous moon speech because the groundwork has already started to be laid. And so he could take this sort of momentum that the Eisenhower administration kind of laid based on the work from Walt Disney to then kind of galvanize the nation around going to the moon. And then, you know, you had the 62 and 64 World's Fairs that kind of reinforced that, but that's, that's a side, side piece. So that's the, that's the cultural point. Yeah, that's really, so you know what's interesting about the like TV, like coming on TV and giving little videos of the progress and stuff? That in many ways is, is almost like, or it's basically the same thing, really, if you think about it, of like, I don't know, Tesla sharing uh, videos of like the new Gigafactory or like SpaceX live streaming the launches. And like, it's the same idea because it's just it's like storytelling and it's like making the 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 viewer and the general public feel like part of the, the journey. I know sometimes I, di- I actually discount some of that stuff a lot because I'm like, this is almost like, uh, you know, I think we'll probably get into this more, too, in the episode. But like. I sort of um, teeter between optimistic and pessimistic, so, so and like cynical and like and and in in awe, and I try to stay more in the awe side, but sometimes I get cynical, and it's like sometimes I see those companies doing that that type of stuff, and I'm like, wow, like how do people not see through that this is just marketing? But like at the same time, you do need that that like sort of uh, vision and like that sort of storytelling to get people on board, and you. It's like the Steve Jobs like reality distortion field. It's the same. It's the same idea. It sounds like Walt Disney actually had a, a lot of that. Yeah, it all well. it all comes down to story, and I think you're you're spot on. Like people just don't really appreciate this, especially in like the tech and Silicon Valley world, where you have all these people with a lot of capital, with a lot of influence, but they're not choosing to invest it in 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 the culture, right? And I think like progress and progress and policy and, you know, innovation and, you know, stuff in the physical world is all downstream of culture, right? Like the things, the stories we tell about the future shape what we choose to build and what we aspire towards. Like the fact that we haven't had, like I was looking at this this morning, like the last like monument, the last tower, like that, like people can point to like, oh, this is a symbol of progress for a city, at least in the US, was like the Space Needle in 1962, which is ridiculous and we haven't built new things like this that give people that sort of like oh wow like this reminder of of what could be or what's possible yeah yeah two things on this so one the new train station in new york city the moynihan train train hall i think is what it's called 
for Amtrak is actually really nice. Like I make fun of American infrastructure all the time, especially New York infrastructure, because it's I mean, I, I think the subway is actually still a marvel, even though I mean it has its issues. But it's still it's still great that you know it exists and it's probably the best public public transport in uh, at least the cities that I've lived in, like San Francisco and DC and Pittsburgh, which has barely any public transportation to speak of, and New York. But this train hall is actually like it's built in the style of like I don't know like a Gilded Age like 1800s. It, they took like the old post office building that was like this big like probably like the biggest post office building in the country. I'd imagine it's just this massive space and turned it into a train hall and it's just like it's beautiful like it's like marble everywhere like just a great setup i mean i'm sure somebody's gonna come back and be like oh no it's not that great compared to like this other one in asia sure but it's the best like american one that i've seen and new infrastructure that i've seen i know it took them a long time to build it like it probably cost i don't even know what it cost i I never looked into this all i'm saying is when i took it a few weeks ago and i took a train from there i was like wow we're capable of this. Like we can actually do stuff like this. Like it doesn't have to look like Penn station, which is like a dump, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like I, I, America, we can actually do this. So yeah, you're spot on with that of like the, the stories that we tell ourselves and like what we see around us shapes what we think we're capable of in the future. Actually, one thing I wanted to go on that was like a tangent, uh, not a tangent, but I was like, it'll open up the door for a tangent. I'm curious what you'd say. So like, I feel like, in the past, and you've looked into this more, there were many more sort of like space and like, I don't know, almost like sci-fi stories that were getting told. And I don't mean the past, like, you know, the 20s or something. I mean, like I'm talking like 60s, 50s, sort of this, like the time we were going to the moon. And if you think about like more recently, right, like what are the shows that like everybody has like, or like that sort of were the culture. And they were things like Game of Thrones, which is very much a zero sum like power game. They were The Office, which I, I love both of these shows, but like it was The Office, which is like, I don't know, the, the like trap of being like a middle manager, like a company like a, in a dying industry. Yeah, if you just think about that, it's like the stories we're telling ourselves are not very ambitious. I mean, I guess there's, there's probably tons of counterpoints people would give to me, but like, I guess Breaking Bad is another one, right? It's about like a, the drugs, drug crisis and stuff. Like, I don't know, there's probably counterpoints to everything I'm saying. It's just... These are the shows that I feel like shape a lot of those people our age, I think, watched. Yeah, the Office and like and Game this, of this is another kind of one of the things that I really want to see change in the world that I'm I'm working to change. Like, how do we how do we create new science fiction? How do we create new stories? Like a lot of people think like, oh, you have to have conflict and, you know, you need good story elements. There has to be good versus evil and da, 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 da. like, yes, that's true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the setting in which these stories take place has to be in this dark, dreary, dystopian future. Like Ready Player One, let's take like Snow Crash and Ready Player One as just like an example to riff on here. Like the only reason that we have the Oculus and we have this concept of the metaverse is because Neil Stephenson wrote Snow Crash, a bunch of like smart, nerdy kind of technologists read it. Like, oh, that'd be kind of cool. And then Ernst Klein wrote Ready Player One which kind of amplified the con or built on top of the concepts from, from Snow Crash. And then you had Palmer Lucky and Zuck like read these books and be like, oh yeah, I want to create this. And then got after it. And so you know, Palmer built this in his garage because he thought it'd be cool. Zuck had the money, so he bought it. And then now they've doubled down their invest in their investments in that in that space because they've like read this book, they have this vision for the future that they think would be really cool and they want to see it realized. Like 
that is how these things happen, right? Like Elon went to like wants to go like everyone wants to go to space because like we had the space race in the '60s and you had the science fiction kind of foundations. Like it's so underappreciated that these things kind of influence, like art influences kind of yeah. Like I said earlier, like technology and progress is downstream of culture. Like these artifacts actually matter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm rereading right now uh, Ender's Game, and it's actually shot. I hadn't reread it since I was a kid. Have you, have you read it? It's been a while. It's been a while. Okay, yeah, I, I read it last probably in like high school, so it's been like a long time. And the thing that shocks me is like all the drone stuff that has happened since yes. I'd read that book. Like I remember when I read it, I'd be like, oh, it'd be cool if like people could actually do this all remotely. Like you're flying a plane and fighting aliens remotely. Like that's all cool. And like through the simulated warfare and stuff, like it's all it's it would be really cool if that's possible. And now it's like everything in that book, I'm like, this isn't even fiction. Like this is all sure the inter like the inter like galactical side of it, sure, that part is probably still I mean, is definitely fiction because of just the time lag of transmitting data, but like everything else is actually fairly it's not even fiction, it's all doable. Minus the space travel part. Like that part is still we we haven't made the progress there, but like it's it's interesting that everything in that book basically is not fiction anymore, minus the fighting aliens part. <laughs> How much does he think is like is like self fulfilling? Like, because you, you look at like Star Trek and see the same thing. It's like, oh well, Star Trek's no longer futuristic. We have a lot of these, a lot of these things. And is it because they were so good at predicting, or is it because people saw those things? Like, oh yeah, like that's what we should build, and then they built it. No, I think it's more, it's the latter more, it's more than, than the former, I guess, then the, the follow up question would be, where did those ideas originally even come from? Like, how do you even envision that? And I think it's probably like more of like a, a helix or like a spiral of some sort, where it's like a, a link between technology and culture. So like Isaac Asimov, for example, he was, uh, I think he was an engineer, like a chemist or something or physicist. Yeah, biochemistry professor at, at Boston University. Education. Yeah, a graduate program in chemistry at Columbia. So he's definitely like a scientist writing science fiction books. And so where I was going with that is like, he's aware of probably more general trends in technology than the average person. He was also an academic. So he's probably around a lot of like cutting edge ideas and, and research. And then a lot of that made his made its way into his books, even if it wasn't on purpose. Like I'm sure there was some via like osmosis even just going into, into his books just because he was around this type of stuff all the time. And that's what I mean, that there's probably some kind of feedback loop between like real world progress and technology progress and the storytelling. I'm curious if like you even think that that feedback loop is happening right now in the same way that it was. Oh, oh, I, I definitely I, I definitely don't think it's happening right now. Like me, like you have Neil Stephenson, um, Elliot Pepper, and a couple other like science fiction authors who are who are like involved or they are looped into some of the information streams that are connected to like progress and innovation. But I think a lot of a lot of science fiction authors say and writers and like filmmakers like just aren't in a way like a lot of the the science fiction I'm um, out myself here is like it's it's very like anti capitalistic it's like anti it's it's almost like anti human in a way too or it's like oh these systems of oppression are are so bad how do we imagine a future without them right so it's it's like trying to write stories that are solutions to this perceived problem rather than taking a narrative uh, taking out of the narrative where like Technology and progress are inherently good, and so what? What sort of what kind of world can that create? And then how do we solve problems that are that make life around the world better for everybody, rather than being very vocal about like what we're against? Like what? It's it's almost like there's this there's this tension in the world today, not just in science fiction, but I guess more broadly, like 
people are, there's a lot of people who are against things. I don't want new housing. I don't want new cities. I don't want this. I don't want that. Bad, bad, bad. And very few people are actually championing, like, what are they for? Right. They've, they've kind of defined their identity as what they're against rather than like the sort of world they, they want to see. And this is another problem. It's like, what, what kind of, like, what do you, what kind of world do you want to live in? Yeah. Right. So what is your vision basically? Like, yeah, there's a recent Made You Think episode, uh, somewhat recent, is a couple months ago now, called uh, about a book called Revolt of the Public. And that's basically what this author's point is, is that, and he doesn't, he doesn't go as far as what, what we're talking about here, which is, you know, maybe thinking actually, we're thinking a little bit more prescriptively about what the future vision should be, but he doesn't really talk about the future vision. He just says that we're in this era where everybody wants to negate. It's, the, it's very easy to negate because we can see the flaws because there's a lot more transparency than there was in, call it the 60s. And because of that, we're kind of like, let's tear the whole thing down because there's all these imperfect people rather than how do we kind of build it up or like, what is our vision actually for the future? It's everybody. And he's, he's kind of implicating all sides here. So you brought up the anti-capitalist stuff, but then there's also kind of like the other, the, the, the right side as well, which is like, you know, kind of uh, maybe anti-progress in a different way. <laughs> and so, so you have like, yeah. It, so he's not making a partisan argument. He's kind of saying like, this is just, we live in this era of we're just, constantly in like teardown mode and that makes it really hard to build yeah i think that's 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 a important caveat it's, it's not like uh it's not it's not even a political thing it's just like in general people are so caught up in yeah the problems rather than the possibilities and there's this quote i had to make sure i attributed properly like john jocks rousseau it's like the world of reality has its limits the world of imagination is boundless and it's like it sounds like a Disney quote too, or something. Yeah, it's you know I think probably Disney Disney's you know Disney has something similar. It's like or you, you see this like Steve Jobs, or it's like everything around you is built by people know smarter than you, like that sort of thing. People just they're like so confined to the boxes that they like are trained in or that they're thinking about that the idea of anything else like certain things being like possible is just so far out of scope for for their like day to day. I think like this is the role that science fiction has played. It was like, I don't know, like, I don't know about you, but like as a kid, I'd read popular science magazines. I'd watch like science fiction movies and be like, oh, oh, this, this, this could be cool. This like, oh, this is possible. Like it just like challenged, it stirred my imagination. And I think like that's, that's the root of a lot of the things that people choose to go, to go do and build. I mean, like, I don't know, but for like go to science camp. Okay, like I never, I never was fortunate enough to go to like science or space camp, but like it's like, oh, cool. How was your, how was your experience there, Neil? I went to DNA camp, which was cool. We were extracting DNA. We were making the uh, like the light up fish type of thing. Like we didn't actually make it, but they were like kind of theoretically teaching us how to do that. We did get to extract DNA though, which was cool. I was in eighth grade, and I was like. I don't know. I was a little embarrassed that I was there, but it was cool. I actually, I actually had a lot of fun in there. It was like two weeks and it was, it was awesome. Like I still remember a lot of different parts of it where I was like, wow, I didn't know. Like it's stuff that you had read about and you're just like, wow, I'm like literally extracting DNA right now. Like, this is cool. Like this is DNA and you like see it in your little like two. Yeah. And there's a strand. You're like, just, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like wild. Yeah. It, it's just a really cool uh, thing. And like, yeah, I, I think it, it, it was a great experience. I'm like very thankful in hindsight that I did that, even though I don't obviously work in that field right now. It's just, it was really cool to be able to like indulge my own uh, interest and imagination in that. And that things like that exist. You know, it was just kind of cool. For some reason, I have this, this suspicion that like science camp isn't, or space camp, like isn't really a thing anymore. 
yeah, there's like sports camps and summer camps for kids. Like it does, like I haven't heard of, even if these things do exist, they're not like p- cultural artifacts. Like it's not a thing right now. You know, their parents listen to this and, you know, they disagree. Please like message me because I'm really curious. But, like, are, is there a culture of like, you know, kids like Kate, like, you know, probably like middle school and high school of like, actually like, hey, this is what you're doing over the summer. You're going to space camp. You're going to science camp. Like you're going to go learn versus, you know, I know this, we have this with sports, but I don't, I just don't know if the, the culture of like, or the, the norms for what high school and middle school kids do is connected to some of these science engineering projects. Like that's a good, 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 good thing to investigate. Yeah. I don't really know enough, but it's, a, I'm curious if somebody's listening who does know more about this, like, please, please share because yeah, I, I had a great experience with that. I hope it still exists. I hope these kinds of things are, are common, but yeah, I, it could also just be our bubbles cam. Like, it's like, I don't know, as I've gotten older, I feel like I re- notice my bubble a little bit more or like I realize it, even though I'm sure there's plenty of elements of it that I don't realize. I, I have this like inkling suspicion anytime that I'm like, oh, I've never heard of anyone that does that. It's like, yeah, that's probably wrong. Okay, something that like hits you in the face with this is when you see the stats for like which companies sell the most groceries in America. So the number one by far, not even close, is Walmart. Number one, by far, it's like, it, okay, hold up. Let's do share of grocery sales in the US. Okay, I see one from March, 2021. Walmart is 18% of total dollars spent. Kroger is 8.8%, Costco 6.4%, Albertsons 4.7%. Oh no, I don't even know what this one is. A whole Del Hayes? Never even heard of that. Oh, that's like Stop and Shop Giant. Okay, that's the same food line. That's all the same company. So 43 Publix 3.7, Sam's Club 3.6. Sam's Club is owned by Walmart, by the way. So you just add those two together. Target is 2.4, Aldi 2.3. Amazon and Whole Foods together are only 2.4%. However, if you ask most people in our like demographic, where do you buy your groceries? They would probably mostly say Whole Foods or I order some things on Amazon and maybe Trader Joe's, which is also 1%. <laughs> so like, it's literally combined in out like those three right amazon whole foods trader joe's is only 3.4 percent of grocery sales in america and yet if you ask anybody in our in our sort of demographic where do you buy groceries they would say that so it just hits you in the face of like damn i live in such a small bubble it's crazy i had this realization the other the other day because in san francisco you have a whole foods and then right across the street is a safeway and i was like i'm gonna get some things at whole foods some things at safeway and like this is going to sound obvious when I say it, but I realize like the premium you're paying at Whole Foods is actually not for the product, but it's like, it's a class thing. It's you're, you're paying so you don't have to shop next to like the like underclass, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, I don't think this is anything we need to cut. I think this is actually like probably part of their business model. I think this is like, they know that they definitely I know. Like, I was like, doing. holy shit. Cause like I, I walked across the street and like dudes walking around without, like there's this dude walking around without a shirt on in the middle of the Safeway. And he's just like carrying a bunch of Gatorades and like a jug of milk. And he's just like holding things in his like, this dude doesn't have a shirt on. He's just walking around half naked through the Safeway. There's a sort of like variety of people. Like no one's wearing Lululemon and yoga pants. There's no Patagonia vest. Like it was a very different experience walking to the Safeway. It was blatantly obvious. Like, oh, there's like the class system. Like in San Francisco is like really bad. Or like there's like a huge, huge Delta. Yeah, it's I don't every, think it's just San Francisco. But... I think it, that's true. That's that's definitely true everywhere. 
and I think it's 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 on purpose, and it's actually if you start looking, you see that more and more for for kind of everything, right? There's like different levels of travel. There's different types of stores people buy in. You know, like Costco, for example, is very much a middle class place. Like you probably don't get to meet rich people there. You probably don't get to meet poor people there because you can't really afford to buy in bulk or the membership. Yeah, it's just I mean, you notice it more and more that like a lot of companies. It might be unspoken, but like the customer segment is very much segmented by by class as well. It's like we see the same thing with like the opioid crisis. Like, I don't have any friends who have like anyone who's like like even like second degree that this is like died of opiate addiction. Like, which is not true for the majority of like at least Americans. Which is oh damn. Like on the topic of bubbles, it's like oh we definitely do live do live in kind of like these, these isolated pockets, right. Or like in San Francisco, you know, people would move around like, oh, you move from your, you know, your nice apartment to your office and like everything else in between. It's, just, it's weird. This is something like on change. Yeah. Balaji had this question that he posed on a podcast to someone recently, which is like, how do you know that we're actually like not already living in dystopia? Like this is dystopia. The challenge, like how do we fight our way out? How do we build our way out? Dystopia is not a destination we are like heading towards. It's like, it's already exists for a lot of people. If you were in certain bubbles, like you don't see it. And so how do we actually, you know, thesis with the FAIR project, which is like, how do we actually kind of elevate the ambition like of, of everybody and tell stories that connect to people beyond just those already exposed to like the information streams that show the future being exciting? Because like a lot of people don't think the future is going to be exciting. Like a lot of people. Yeah, or they have a very negative view of what the next 50, 100 or whatever many years people will their vision is. Yeah. And I think also the other part of it is that as much as it sucks, like, well, it doesn't suck. It's just a fact of human nature is just stories travel way better than information than just like knowledge based information. And so, you know, you may have ideas for the future or thoughts around what it can look like, but a story or a visual or a movie or something like that is just going to, it's just going to click and become a meme. Right. I mean, that's why memes are so popular. It's like, you could write, you know, a, a tweet, thread a twitter thread saying the same information as a meme and like nobody's going to click or read the thread but the meme is going to get a lot more impressions and likes and retweets so it's just a fact of of how human brains work now i think it's probably about time we start talking about what you're actually building yeah. so <laughs> yes, um, yes i remember when i first heard you were working on the world's fair i think i just saw it on twitter or something i was like i don't understand what is this like how how is he planning to do this so would love for you to dive into what the World's Fair that you're building is, the vision, how you got there, and just kind of like tell, tell us all about it. Yeah, so the, we, uh, we've hosted these World's Fairs in the past. And when you know, I kind of put out this, this flag, which is like, hey, it's time to build these again. This mega event used to serve a very important kind of role in, in the culture, giving people space to gather, to share stories, to, to be, really be optimistic about the future. And so... About a year ago, I wrote this essay, um, just kind of calling for, it's like this call to arms, like, hey, it's time to build a, a new world's fair. This is the trendy topic at the time. Everyone's like, it's time to build X, it's time to build Y. We used to have this cultural institution that like give people hope for the future. And we've, we've lost that. And the thing that we need now more than ever is this sort of like vision for how, how might our lives look better 10 years, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Really, the idea is rooted in like these events from the past. But then the question was like, okay, well, like, what might that look like today? Because you have these events that, you know, gather people, but a lot of the times people forget that they were 
they were they were like started by people they were like created by somebody yeah it's like the thing is like we look at we look to history and we see these grand projects and it's like wow this surely there's a giant group doing this thing the reality is like no all these big projects all the things we see in the world were just like one or two people with an idea and just were like this needs to exist let's go build it and so it's a little bit of backstory like I went to, to Disneyland for the very first time when I was 10. A lot of kids love Disneyland for the turkey legs, for the churros, for the, the rides, for the characters. But for me, the, the thing that still sticks with me to, to this day is this experience I had in what was called like the Innovation Center. Innovation, invention. Mm. Yeah. Is that in Epcot? It was in Disneyland, California. Okay. And what it was like, I remember stepping onto this, this bright red carpet and being rotated into this theater. This host came out and she brought out Osimo, the little Honda robot, right? And I'm 10 years old. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I've seen this stuff on TV. I've watched this in science fiction movies. Or I've read about robots in books or in popular science. But like seeing Osimo walk up and down the stairs, like go get the mail, come back and like talk to us was just like mind, mind boggling for me. And then they opened their home up to us and, you know, run inside. Her touch screens on all the walls. You can talk to the kitchen. The kitchen will talk back to you. You know, there's a 3D printer, augmented reality mirror, and a piano that's that's playing itself. And this all sounds trivial today. This is like this is 2005. We didn't have the right. iPhone. We didn't have Alexa. No. Like, we didn't have touch screens. Like the iPad didn't exist. The iPhone didn't exist. Like none of these things were part of anyone's day to day. And I just was so enamored with the possibility that technology and innovation, like the role that that could have on making. My life is a 10-year-old kid living in, you know, more or less farmland in the Pacific Northwest, like much, much better. And, you know, it was that that tangible experience that I had, you know, that all that, that inspired me to kind of go do stuff in technology and uh, want to want to build these things. And, you know, about 10, let's see, 20, no, 15 years later, like, question is like, what, yeah, what do we, yeah. yeah, like, what do we need now? Like, the world's kind of a mess right? People don't think the future is hopeful. Like these stories that like I'm excited about that I think a lot of other people are excited, like aren't being told. And I thought back to that, that time at the intervention center, like what if, what if we could create that same sort of experience for like millions of people, especially young kids to give them, like I had this like hope for the future through this sort of like physical experience. It's like, wait a minute, didn't we, didn't we used to do this? Didn't we have stuff like this? Like right now it's Disneyland. Like what happened to the world's fair? And just like yep. click that moment. I'm like, oh, this is this is what this needs to be. And like you look through the history and you see that there are some of these world's fairs. And we, we, we talked about the history. Like uh, there's some of these fairs that like were great. They were like, you have the great world's fairs and you have a bunch of like kind of subpar ones. And the thing that made the great fairs great was this feeling that they evoked. This like feeling of hope and optimism and wonder for the future that like gives us this nostalgia today. And people think the World's Fair is, is one thing, but how do we kind of reinterpret it, reinterpret this event from the past to then like fit the, the modern era? How do we tell stories about the future that excite and inspire and do it in kind of this, this physical medium that like very similar to how we, how we did in the past? You know, that's, that's kind of at the core, like the whole point of this project. It's like, let's revive and reimagine the, the once great World's Fair and use it as a vehicle to tell stories that introduce millions of kids and millions of people to the possibilities of, of technology and how that can lead to a, to a better future for all. So that's kind of the grand vision. And the, the, the goal is to open 
the whole like full scale fair by the by the end of the decade. Of course, like how do we how do we work up to that? You know, and how do we start doing things on on the day to day that actually work to accomplish the mission, which is this like hope for the future. So I can get into that, but I'll I'll like let you just shape. I mean, that's an awesome vision, and it's it's big. So a few follow up questions. Like I feel like there, we talked about this earlier. There's like dystopian version and utopian version. But then there's areas that we never even talk about, really. And so, you know, like one area that you could say is a dystopian version of like, like just take something simple like metaverse. And you say the dystopian version of that is, oh, we're all going to be like sitting in a chair with an IV hooked up to us. And we're just going to like live in this like virtual world. And that's like to most people, I would say that sounds awful, like not interesting. Actually, not even not interesting. It sounds like very off-putting and like the hell essentially <laughs> to a lot of people on the other hand you could say there's like the the like utopian or, or at least good version of something like that is you could have someone who's like paralyzed and still able to through their brain or something be able to navigate and, and enjoy a world that is where they can move and do things and like have this freedom and on and at the same time you know you could also say from an imagination standpoint you know kids have been playing video games and like getting into it for a long time and adults as well and now you can like literally live in those worlds or spend physical time in those or like what you perceive to be physical time in those worlds. And that's actually like, you know, kind of interesting, too. And uh, and that's like, you know, metaverse plus VR, AR type technology could, could be combined for that. And that's like the utopian or like good version of it. But I feel like there's a lot of areas that we don't even acknowledge or talk about as a, as a society. That's like my first question is just what areas do you see the World's Fair impacting? Like what what types of exhibits, uh, if I can go that far, uh, are you envisioning? You can break down kind of the future into a bunch of like high level categories. And then the stories within each of those, like, you know, currently there's a lot of like negative stories being told. You can invert them. So yeah, we have that we have the metaverse, but you also have just like science, just like basic science, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, then, you know, brain check, synthetic biology. It's like, how do we get people excited about, you know, what this sort of has enabled for people in the past and what sort of kind of in, like, what sort of things could be unlocked if we continue to advance our understanding of some of these basic, basic fields. Um, then getting, you know, a bit more technically savvy or technically kind of in depth, you have energy, right? The stories aren't energy right now. No one can agree on the sources of energy. It's, it's renewables, it's, it's fusion, it's fission, you have oil. It's like, what is the what is a composite picture of like an energy abundant future look like? That's not getting a lot of. I mean, that's that's starting to kind of get get headway, but a lot of people are still viewing energy as kind of zero sum. You have computing and AI. What is like a positive relationship with humanity and artificial intelligence look like? It's not Terminator. AI is going to destroy the planet as much as you know uh, certain subsets of the internet uh, niche communities would like you to believe. It's like this can be a really enabling force for people. This can unlock all sorts of you know personal growth personalized learning, communication across borders, et cetera. You have travel and transportation. Like how do we move around the world? How do we like, how do we get, get around our cities? You know, like you have autonomous transportation, you have supersonic flight, you have, you can group space into that category, but you know, space also is pretty, pretty good on its own. What does a positive sum narrative of space look like? Humans are exploring the galaxy and, you know, earth is thriving. You have kind of earth and climate, oceans, you know, software, the list goes on, but it's like, how do we actually take these different kind of fields and tell stories and create experiences that 
that support and kind of champion like the best ideas and the like the most pro-human, pro-abundance ideas within these fields, and then use the the fair as a vehicle to kind of tell those stories. That was a that was a bit kind of windy, but hopefully like that tracked. So are you envisioning this being a permanent, like the fair being a permanent thing or being a like traveling thing? Like it goes from city to city. How do you picture it if you're thinking end of the decade? I envision it running very similar to, to the way these events have run in the past where, where they are temporary, but they're used and the best ones were, were done this way. They're used to like accelerate some sort of like a legacy plan for the site, right? You could think like a new university campus, a new walkable walkable city, a new urban development, like a lot of the, these things like can be created using the campus of the fair. Or like they can be created like as a result of, of the fair. And then the idea is like the fair runs and then six years later, we do another one. And six years later, we, we do another one, but in different places. And this avoids, I know we didn't talk about this earlier, like the Epcot problem, which like Epcot was great in the, in the 80s. But if you go now, it, it feels kind of hollow and empty and it's lost its soul because because you're seeing the same stuff. The technology that they're showing there is, is pretty much the same as it was in the 80s and the 90s, right? So they've had to like uh, what's called future-proofing. They've had to do what's called future-proofing with Epcot because it's it's been far too expensive for them to continue to update things like and keep pace with the rate of change in technology. In fact, they're kind of cutting all this like this future stuff out and they're replacing it with their other IP. So instead of you know telling a story about the future of climate and the planet, you know, based in technology that's being developed today, you know, they're like, let's, let's like, let's inject Moana and tell the story of water and like that. Or like space is now like guardians of the galaxy. And it's like, it makes sense for, for Disney to do this. It like maximizes kind of the, the vibe. They're like, it creates this huge, like missing gap, which is like, how do we actually create experiences that tell people about the stories of technology that are being built today? At the end of the day, like, this is what matters. Like we want people to have hope. We want people to have hope. In order to have hope, you have to have three things. Like it's kind of academic, but it's very simple. You have to have goals. Where do we want to go? What does the like the world look like in, in the year 2100? Right? Like let's have a conversation and be able to visualize that and discuss it and experience it. Two, you have to have pathways. What is the work that's being done today, like in the in the real world, that is going to lead to that future? Not this like, oh, 2100 would be amazing if all this fake stuff, you know, happened. No, it's like, what is, what is very real? What's being done? You know, we have on the energy front, you have companies like Oaklo and New Scale and Zap Energy. On transportation, you have, you have Boom and Joby and Hermes. You, on you know, cities, you have cul-de-sac, you have like Praxis, you have all these like smaller buildings. Like essentially, it's like, what's, what are the pathways, right? What's being done today to build that, that future? And then three, you have to have agency. So you have to like look at these things, like, oh, wait a minute. Like I, Cameron, you need like you, the listener, like, you have the ability and the capacity to go like find one of these pathways, help advance that frontier, go do that work to, uh, to help us all arrive at that, that vision for the future we all want to live in. And like right now, like and most of the science fiction is kind of disconnected from, from the real pathways. So it feels kind of fake, right? And the pathways are very like real right now. If you're, if you're tapped in the right information streams, um, which is nothing we can talk about, but there's no vision for where it all goes. And, and then like the stories of these things like AI or the metaverse end up being kind of interpreted through this, this like negative dystopian lens rather than one of like possibility and abundance because nobody is painting the vision for what sort of positive world we could be living in with this technology. 
Yeah, it's almost like people are holding themselves back. Like, we should definitely talk about the information streams thing, but this definitely reminded me of in Eric Jorgensen's interview with uh, Balaji recently, which is a great interview. I'm definitely going to link to it in the show notes. In that interview, he brought up, Balaji brought up a really good point where he's like, people have the scale of their ambitions has gone down so much compared to in the past where now, you know, sort of the height of ambition, let's say in like healthcare would be, oh, we can provide like affordable healthcare to everybody. Right. And that's like considered a big vision at this point. And he's like, if you turn around to somebody like that and say, well, what if we like figured out a way to be so healthy and solve medical issues so much that we don't really need active, you know, interventionist healthcare where it's all preventative, essentially. And he even says, you can go further than that and say, what if like death was optional or something? And the response you get from somebody who previously thought of themselves as a big thinker because they were pushing for healthcare for all is like, it becomes very actually reductionist and critical where it's like, oh, that's not possible or that wouldn't be good for this reason. Or, you know, there's, I think he uses this thing where it's like, there's a beauty in death or something like that. And then he's like, your response to that should be, well, which of your family members, you know, do you want to watch die? So it's just like, there's this, the scale of ambition that we're, we're kind of not thinking as big um, as we used to. So yeah, I think you're right. It's like, there is probably a lot. I mean, and this goes back to information streams. I mean, unless you're in a space, you don't really know what's happening in that particular industry. You just know what, you know, the media is telling you or what gets pushed into your Twitter feed or whatever. And also Twitter is a bubble. When going back to the bubbles, most people don't use Twitter. Like, this is a fact. <laughs> like, most people don't have active Twitter accounts. I mean, I read what Twitter defines as a heavy tweeter. It's four tweets a week. That's a heavy tweeter. That's, and that's like the top, like, 1% of users is like four tweets a week. Which just shows you how much of a bubble we all live in. <laughs> that goes back to like just information streams, just like how would even people know what's possible and what what's being worked on? I love that framework that you said, the goals, pathways, and agencies, because the information is basically showing you the pathways. The goals are almost like these big visions, whether that comes from culture or from like, I don't know, leaders, whether those leaders are like political or business or scientists. And then agency is, I think, also a very important one. Like, I've never been a fan of this idea that the people who've created this world are some sort of superhumans or like people with, you know, beyond. Yes, there are limits to everything I'm about to say. I can't play basketball like LeBron James. It's not physically going to happen for me. So there are physical limits. I'm not saying there's no physical limits or not things we're born with. But I just don't like that idea that I feel like has become very prevalent. Like anybody who's like, doing something or it is kind of like viewed as intelligent. It's like, oh, they're a genius. It's like, no, they probably aren't. They're probably not actually that much smarter than you. They just like have done things a little bit differently or instead of, you know, watching TV, they're reading books or like watching documentary. You know, there's like they're doing, they're, they're taking different actions and making that idea more prevalent, I think is is very good because it gives people that agency of, yes, if I take certain actions, I can actually be involved in this and do something about it. So I'll get off my high horse now and let you go back to the information streams. Man, well, well this, this is why role models, role models are so important. Okay, like uh, everyone looks at Elon, you know, the, the Twitter chief twit as it, as, it, as it is. And they're like, wow, look at what he's doing. I could never do that. If you look at Elon back in like, you know, 2005, like he was way more accessible as like, is it like an individual? I think what, there's this gap between the role models that kids have and like the actual practicality of them, like 
becoming that person. There's like, there's too much space between Elon and like random, like any, any given person. And that makes it really hard to be like, oh, I could, I could be that. Like I could do that. I could be that person. Like it takes, I mean, some, some kids will be inspired by that, but a lot of them won't be like, oh, that could never be me. And I think if we can make these sort of like the process of, of building or doing kind of things in the world, like more accessible, you can give kids these pathways they're like way more accessible than, than they otherwise would be and like, oh, wait, oh, I, I can't go do that. We need to close the gap between like, you know, where you start and where you end up. And like, I think like a good example of this, like uh, there's an interview, Dylan, Dylan Feld, the founder of Figma, um, did some interviews, you know, and like before they got acquired and everyone looks at that and like, wow, he must be a genius. Look at, look at that. What a huge success. And like the narrative is, is spun that way because that's what people are excited about. But the reality is like he gave an interview where he's like, I almost got fired because like, I just didn't have any leadership experience or management experience. Like my team kind of like they came and were like, Hey, we're going to quit if like you don't fix your shit. Wow. And like he invested in that and like fixed it. That's the sort of like accessible, like the stories that need to be accessible to people. Cause so, like, everyone's not just like some demigod. There's all these trials and tribulations that need to like, that you have to go through in order to like accomplish anything meaningful. And like that, that gap in the, in the story is just like completely taken or that like piece is just totally taken out. The story yeah and so going back to your three points it's like the goals the pathways and the agency and i've never heard it framed like that but that is spot on because if you don't have one of those like if you just have pathways and you have agency it still doesn't lead to hope because then you have optionality problem where it's just like there's too much going on and without any like there's no destination and that's a hard place to be if you have goals and agency but no pathways then you're just frustrated because you're just like, well, I know where I want to go. I know I can do it, but I don't know how to get there. Like there's no path. And if you have goals and pathways with no agency, then that, that's the problem we just talked about. To circle back to like the, you know, what is, what is the fair? Like there's like the, the physical event of the fair, but you know, the, the organ, like really the kind of higher level piece, there's like the organization that I'm kind of building here is like the World's Fair Co. But so it's not just like, oh, let's do a fair. It's let's build this ecosystem that kind of is built around this framework. How do we do things that imbue people with a sense of agency? How do we support and eliminate the pathways that are being built today, like build a better world? And then three, like how do we tell stories and create experiences in, in media that like showcase the possible world that we could be living in? We framed the fair, like design of like the, the you know, longer term, you know, the end of decade, you know, grand full scale world's fairs, like built around this framework. It's like, we have the, the pavilions and the realms that show off the pathways. Like this is the work being done today. And then I think as, as, as you know, you know, we did a little exercise on, you know, what, what could the future look like in this like kind of immersive, like this sort of like immersive world, you know, set in a fictional 2100. Those are the goals. So like what kind of world could we find ourselves living in on earth, in space, under the ocean is a way to kind of really, really celebrate those goals. And then, yeah, there's, then there's a bunch of stuff that we're going to, we're going to do with that. The, the new Atlantis conversation was so interesting that when we talked about that, it was such a fun exercise. Like I felt like a kid again. It was just really, really fun. Actually, question was a little bit more practical. How is the organization structured? Like, is it a company? Is it like, are, do you have investors? Like, how is it structured? You know, initially kind of coming from Silicon Valley, you know, the, the default is like, oh, go start a, go start up a C Corp, go use, uh, I'm going to out myself as a technologist you're like go use stripe atlas and you know to incorporate and set up a bank account and, and all that and then use a, a y combinator like safe to go raise some money 
And that's kind of, you know, where, where this started last year, kind of wrote that essay, got a grant from Tyler Cowen um, to go kind of fund, you know, the R&D. And then to get a little more, a few more resources, I'm like, oh, let's spin up a C-Corp. Let's, you know, have people invest just, and then kind of raise a little bit of, of capital. But in the process, realized like the sort of thing, like the sort of cultural institution should not be owned by, by anyone. It shouldn't be driven by this like motive to generate, you know, venture scale returns. Like we have to do things for like, not just for the fair, but in general, like do things for a higher purpose beyond like maximizing profit returns. And so the way that I've kind of landed to structure the fair is like the entity, the organization itself is set up as a 501c3 now, not because like it's a charity or like that's the business, the business model is like getting donations, but just like the tax status and like forces kind of the alignment of the org and everyone involved to like maximize kind of impact towards the mission. And so th- that means like we need, you know, individual patrons and finance people who have capital, like kind of fund these sort of kind of cultural artifacts. But I view this not too, not too different than like, you know, a museum or a museum or kind of just any sort of like cultural uh, institution. So how is it then funded today? Is it just the grant from Tyler or? So, yeah, so it was the grant from Tyler, then a few, like kind of uh, a handful of other patrons. And then this is kind of the the next phase is go, going to find the, the next set of patrons to kind of fund the like next phase of development. But it's very much like, how do you run nonprofits or like these new sort of like institutions like startups where you're funding the specific milestones, right? Where it's not, oh, hey, just give us a bunch of money and we'll figure it out. It's like, no, here, like this is where there needs to be some innovation. I'm hoping like, with the fair, I can help illuminate a new pathway for building these sorts of things where it's like, oh, yeah, you actually don't have to take, like, you can find individuals who have lots of capital who want to see, you know, positive things happen in the world. They'll fund projects if you scope them properly and, like, there's clear outcomes. And then you go execute. Then you kind of go back and, like, okay, hey, like, here's what we want to do next. And you find more people and you've demonstrated competence along the way. I think we were, t- we were talking about this once upon a time where the world food system person, someone from like the, the, the UN on, on like the food and hunger. And he's like, hey, Elon, like you're a billionaire. You have a bunch of money, like get, solve, solve world hunger. And he's like, okay, sh- show me a plan. Like if you have a plan and like you can, go, you can go execute on, like I'm more than happy to fund this. And of course they didn't come back with a concrete plan. It was very abstract. And everyone's like, oh, Elon, like they called Elon's bluff and he didn't fund it. It's like, no, you look at the plan, like there's no timelines, there's no milestones, there's no like line items for delivery. And I, be- I fundamentally believe like if you have a plan, you have a good idea and you prove that you can go execute on it, like you can find people who will finance like that piece, right? Especially if it's kind of like under the guise of like tax deductions where it's like, cool, like you have all these people, this is, this is another thing I'm thinking about. So you have, there's so much capital in the world of like technology in Silicon Valley. You have crypto capital, you have, you have startup founders, you have all these exits, like there's so much capital, but like there's very, very, very little like action being taken to like channel it into like the physical world. It's like, oh, let me go invest in another like SaaS company or, you know, play in the markets. But, like the point of having capital, like there's this, you have all these people with like FU money, but they're not saying FU, like not investing in things that are like culturally significant or culturally relevant. Like where are our like giant statues of like the double helix? I wonder that all the time, right? It's like when this is like, I mean, this sounds pessimistic, but I feel like this is just the way the world is. Like at some point, this 
American society will not exist. And the artifacts of the society are like, what right now, right? Like Statue of Liberty, which we didn't even make, that came from France. Like maybe some of our bridges and sports stadiums, you know, might be some of the relics. But we don't have like, you know, yeah, the statues and like the monuments in the same way that, you know, let's say like the Italian Renaissance would have had or even like if you go to Asia, right, like a lot of the shrines and stuff in Japan, you know, because we don't have that sort of like national religious bent, which is which is fine. But, you know, we don't have like, yeah, we don't have those monuments or, or, or uh, artifacts the same way that some of these other societies have had in the past. Like think about all the Roman relics that are still there. The aqueducts still exist. Where, where, where are the where are the plazas? You know what I mean? Like, where's there a good plaza? You know, there's some over in Europe, like in the US, like it's, it's six lane highways and... You know, Maybe the highways like, will be the artifact, actually, now that I think about it. That'll be the equivalent of the aqueducts. They're like, damn, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the iPhones. It's like people will find iPhones in the ground and be like, wait, what was what was that? That was cool. There's like, you know, there's some museums that have like the original iPhone, like in, in like glass casing. You're like, whoa, that is that is ancient dinosaur technology. And I think like this is this brings up like we don't actually appreciate, you know, how far we've come. You know, and like how good the world is that we're living in. Oh, it's amazing. And like, yeah, yeah. it's like the fact that we're, we're able to do this, you know, like. No, no, no. not just that like, we're able to talk. Awesome. We're able to talk, record it, post it on the Internet. And literally, as long as the Internet exists, like this thing exists like that's and people can access it for free and they can be in like literally in like the Sahara Desert and be listening to this. That is so freaking cool. It's insane. It's like that's magic. Damn, there's, there's nothing short of magic. Yeah, it's magic. <laughs> Everyone gets so hung up on like, oh, we have this problem or that problem. It's like no one in their right mind would ever trade places with someone from like 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Even less than that, even like 35, 40 years ago. Like I've shared the story with, with my friends. I don't think I've ever said it on a podcast. When my dad moved to the US from India, his family just didn't have that much money. He didn't have that much money. So when he would get off the plane and go home to let his parents know that he got to America safely and he's like back in his apartment. He would do something called booking a collect call, which is like you can book a call with some with a specific person at the house that you're calling. And if that person is not there, they don't have there's no cost. Right. So he'd book a collect call with his dad. They would the operator would call the uh, his dad's house. His dad would pick up the phone and be like, oh, you have a collect call from Rick or Rakesh Sony. And, you know, he would just be like, oh, I'm not here. Like, or not. I'm not here. He'd be like, oh, no, that person is not available right now. They'd be like, great, okay. And then they would hang up. But his dad would then know that like, oh, he got there because he booked the call, right? And like, you would know that you arrived there safely. Now I can talk to my relatives in India for free on WhatsApp, on FaceTime, on Zoom, like, and it never doesn't cost me a penny. I can see their face. I can like talk to them in real time. And it's like literally free. I mean, it's not even that long ago. When I was growing up, which is, you know, like I'm, I'm 31, like I'm not ancient, you know, I remember when I was in like middle school and high school, my grandmother would call me on my birthday and stuff and we'd keep the calls to like two, three minutes because it, w- it would cost us good amount of money to do an international call. And it's like now we literally take it for granted. Like I could literally video chat with my grandma all day if I wanted to. And like it would cost me zero dollars. <laughs> we live in a great time. There's no reason to be pessimistic or cynical. It's like people are working on this. Person. Like, and guess what? You have the, if there's something that's not working, you have the agency to go build it. Like. You can go build these things. You know, learn about these things. You want to learn about like nuclear physics? You want to learn about, you know, semiconductors? You want to learn about space? Like, 
youtube.com, there's more information you could ever, ever need. And like, it's just like, how do we, how do we kind of, I don't know. I think, I think like the resources there, it's like the agency pieces. It's the agency piece paired with like the imagination that, that seems to be, that's like missing. It's like, if we can show people, Hey, here's what, like, Oh, by the way, you can go learn anything on YouTube. Hey, what are you curious about? Hey, check this out. And you can like, in, you can introduce people to like the, like the different, different information streams that like give them a sense of agency and like curiosity that they can then go explore on their own. But a lot of people just like, they're like artificially capped based on the limits of like, you know, where they grew up or the sort of like circumstances they're in. It doesn't need to be that way. In fact, it shouldn't be that way. How do we get people the resources or the, the inspiration to be like, oh, wait a minute, like, let me think about this slightly differently. And then, you know, people are more than capable of, of doing great things. Just they need a little bit of a, a push sometimes. Yeah, or they need that inspiration somehow. And so that actually leads me into my next question is how much of what you're trying to build and your vision ties into the storytelling piece. So like the physical fair, let's say is a decade out or at the end of this decade. So like eight years out, seven, eight years out. And then along that way, right, to like build up to that, are you working with like people in media? Are you like build, creating your own media, creating like documentaries, YouTube videos? Is, is there sort of like a con? I feel like the content strategy is almost like, uh, it's so it's like the crucial piece here <laughs> to make this happen. Yes. So the way I think about the fair, like the physical artifact of like the full square, it's like, it's not the thing. It's simply an anchor. It is something to like rally around. It's something to like focus on. At the end of the day, like the, the journey is what matters. So how do we bring, how do we kind of promote the sort of like the feeling of the fair? Right? I mentioned earlier, like the fair is like great fairs of the past are all about this feeling. It's just like hope and awe and wonder. The question is not how do like how do we just save that and do the biggest possible thing we can. It's a how do we scale up that feeling every day, every week, every month, every year in pursuit of this like bigger mission, this like concrete anchoring like thing, which is the the full scale fair. And so that's kind of what what we're working on. So it's not like oh you know decade out we'll have something. It's like no like it's it's like what do we do? How do we create media? How do we tell stories? But stories that are not focused on like how do we maximize attention or ad revenue, but like, how do we maximize that feeling of, of hope and inspiration? There's a bunch of other things, but I kind of view this as like a, as a creativity factory. It's like, how do we take these ideas that are being worked on and find unique and like clever ways to like share the story about these things to people outside of like the, the outside of like the purview of people who are already paying attention to these things. Like most people don't know about how autonomous transportation can actually change like their day-to-day lives. People see crews, they see Tesla's full self-driving, but like there's not a story about like how that actually might play out for people. So you can imagine, you know, let's go to Chicago and let's just have like a fleet of of like crews self-driving cars and let's give people a tour of, you know, an imagined future where all the cars are self-driving. What does that world look like? What does it feel like? What does it enable for for you as an individual like living in the city of Chicago? And like that's the sort of thing that I'm like we're like working on on rolling out as quickly as we can. Which is like how do we just do these sort of like micro experiments, micro um, kind of experiences that that capture this feeling of the fair? Are you working then with those companies to do stuff like that? Like in each of those areas? Like I mean, I know autonomous driving is just one of the many areas, but yeah, like how do you actually go from because a big part of this show, right, is like, we're talking about building stuff and you're definitely building something and you're building something big. So I kind of do want to get into the weeds a little bit of like, so, okay, let's say, let's use this one, if you want to use this one as an example, 
like how do you even go about doing that? I wouldn't even know where to start. What are the different kind of pieces of the future that like need stories told? Who are the people? What are the organizations like actually doing that work? And how do we take those ideas and then translate them into stories that like people can actually experience? So, so in the case of like, you know, ideally, yes, we would like, we would go to cruise and say, Hey, like, here's, here's the story we want to tell about autonomous transportation. Let's collaborate on the story point, the story beats. You know, what is this, what could this experience look like? What are the resources we need? And then go spin up an experiment where, yeah, we go promote it. We get people to come out and then we kind of take them on the, on this journey. And then the idea is like, you know, over time, each of these little micro experiments stack into a bigger kind of cultural movement where people are viewing the future a bit more optimistically, where they're viewing technology, these kind of scary or you know, like untold kind of possibilities of technology in a way that like, like, oh, wait, this, this is way more accessible to me. Oh, oh, these pathways exist. These pathways make sense. And they lead to the goal or to the vision of a world like I could see myself living in, in fact, that I'm excited to live in. You know, there's the physical experiences, like how do we do these sort of physical things? But then there's also the kind of media front, which is how do we tell stories about these, these organizations, about these projects, like both real and fictional. So one of the, one of the, like the more concrete pieces that I'll, I'll actually debut, debut here is the fair is kind of a long way out. But as I, as I mentioned to you, like we did that creative session on New Atlantis on a Chobani land, which is now named Pangea and then Mars One. Why are we so inspired by a yogurt commercial? You know, it's like, that seems to be like the most technologically advanced, you know, thing. Anyway, I digress. Uh, but let's, we're going to take one of those experiences that ultimately like at the fair, you'll be able to go walk through. You'll step into Pangea, which is this world set in the year 2100. And you'll be able to go like meet the people who are living and working there. You get to have experiences set in that future, like a full, full embodiment, just like you're, you're walking into Disneyland and you go to like Star Wars land. Like everything is designed in that environment to support the sort of like story of the world in which you can, you can be living in. And so right now we're working to develop a 50,000 square foot version of Pangea that will open uh, 18 to 24 months from now where, you know, we'll invite people to come out and step into this, this imagined future. And you'll get to see how, again, some of the stuff being done today can lead to, to a world of abundance and beauty set in this kind of fictional aspirational 2100. And then as part of that, like, how do we tell stories in this, this fictional world that exists? How do we introduce you to characters and concepts that you may not otherwise uh, be thinking about with, with the ultimate goal that like pen, with this first experience and then ultimate the fair, like the, the downstream effects on culture, like kids are dressed up as these fictional characters we create, like for Halloween, right? They're like, Oh, I want to be, I want to be this, like the scientist or this engineer or this person who's like championing, like the, the person who's like funding all these things, like just kind of giving, this comes back to like the accessibility and role models. So, like how do we create these, these characters that, that every kid can see themselves in is a way to kind of get them inspired to go, you know, be the, the, the builders of the next generation to continue kind of pursuing the pathways to reach, reach an abundant future. That's super interesting. So, yeah, I think that's. Uh, also an interesting segue into the next one, which is you had the original World's Fair, which kind of did this almost job for society, for our society. And then now with this new World's Fair, like we have one very, very big difference, which is the internet. And so like, how do you leverage that in terms of obviously the types of content, the type of content you create, the way you distribute that content, but does that also change how you think about like, I mean, actually, I don't know if this was true, but I'm about to make a statement. Tell me if I'm completely off base here. Like the original World's Fair 
at least from what I've read about it, was almost kind of US centric or at least like Western world centric. And I feel like with the internet, it's almost like an equalizing technology that you can pull in stuff for people and participation from anywhere. So how does that play a role in, in what you're doing? It's a good question. I think like the, the US centric nature of like past world's fairs, like it's definitely, I think like the, the fairs that we think of as like great world's fairs were very, like were mostly the ones that were hosted in, in the US, primarily because that's where the center of a lot of technology innovation were, were happening. And therefore like that was, those were kind of the, the focus, like the focal points of the, the fairs. But the world we live in today is like, is, is, is much different. Like we do have immediate access to everyone in every country. Like you, again, you can pick up the iPhone, you can call your grandmother another country and like that wasn't possible 10 years ago so this leads to an interesting design terms like how do we actually like what are the stories of the future i want to tell and like who is doing building in like different countries and how do we give them the the space to kind of come tell their story and create experiences about the work that they're doing and then like obviously you know the there's like the physical constraint of you know having a, a mega event but you could imagine that you know with vr and air technology you can create an experience that everyone around the globe with a a laptop or a smartphone or in an internet connection can can find themselves tapping into and then immediately kind of localize it to their language. So if you're in Rio and you know the fair is being hosted, you know, halfway around the world, you could still kind of go explore and participate and and kind of like be a part of like the story and the experiences like in your language despite not being able to physically physically go there. So yeah, how do we how do we design the thing such that it's, it's accessible to everyone around the globe? How do we distribute kind of content and tell stories that are you know accessible to everyone around the globe? I think there's there's like a lot of new possibilities that like, you know, that we can incorporate into or a lot of new things we can design it incorporate into the design process that made this not like it wasn't possible to do just like a decade ago. And that's awesome. I mean, so actually along those lines if someone's listening to this and is like, man, I really want to get involved or like, where do I learn more about this? Where should they go? Like, you know, what should they watch? What's like a good journey to get started? Because I will say like when I first saw what you were building and it could just be a me thing, not everybody. When I first saw what you're building, I, I like didn't immediately get it. Like I was like, I, this doesn't really make sense to me. Like what's Cam trying to do? Like, not, not that I like didn't, I didn't like think it was interesting. I still thought it was interesting. I just didn't even know where to start with it. Right. Like, I saw the fair vision, but what I didn't see is like all the like inspiring steps that have to happen to get there and the media angle. And like, I mean, you have, I mean, you can even talk about this now, but like the posters that you have are so cool. I still need to get around to buying one, but like, I'm definitely going to do that. And like, they just look amazing. All this stuff that kind of goes along, like what you've been saying this whole time, it's not just about this like end product of the fair at the end of the decade. It's like, all these things that go into it and all the media and all the people and all the like participation from around the globe, like where should somebody start if they're listening to this and they're like, damn, that sounds really cool. I want to, I want to be involved. Best starting points, like go kind of plug into, this is, this is really tricky because he's like, part of the problem is these resources don't exist. So if you're like, I want to be kind of like IV dripped optimism for the future, like where do I go? What do I, what, like, what do I follow? Where do I follow along? And this is, you know, we need to do at least like with with the fair um, is how do we kind of create these curate and create these resources but i would encourage everyone else like if you have optimistic science fiction or you've watched a short film or you have content that you found particularly inspiring like share that i mean send it send it to me on twitter or you know you can reach out to the the fair site like like we kind of need to be curating kind of all this all this kind of optimistic media 
that said, I there's some good resource on YouTube. Uh, I particularly like in the context of the fair. You, know, you have have this series called Defunct Land by Kevin Pajur, and he goes and he looks at the history of like theme parks and has this brilliant set on the 1933 World's Fair, the 1964 World's Fair, and then he has one on kind of the foundation of of Epcot, which was Disney's original vision for like a pro- like a city driven on kind of the foundations of progress. And so those are those are kind of really good places to start if you want to understand like how do mega events kind of play a role in, in shaping and inspiring the culture. And then like, you know, what what actually like what is even possible? You think Walt Disney's like, I'm gonna go build a city. You're like, that's crazy. But you know, you watch watch and kind of read more about it and you're like, oh that that actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, I read a biography of Walt Disney when I was in high school and it was maybe it was in college. It was by uh Neil Gabler, I think. I think it's that one. It was just a really cool book to read at that age. You know, just seeing like, oh, this was all done by a person. Like, this is just a guy. <laughs> that guy can be you. It can be anyone. Like, I don't, I don't quite have like a, a single resource that I point people to, to like, here's immediately how you go and be yourself with a bunch of agency. But I would make a general kind of like recommendation, which is like this sort of information you consume can like fundamentally shape your perception of, of the future. So if you're on the Twitter bubble, kind of curating your feed, like go follow the people who are, who are doing some of the building, go find the areas you're interested in, like go find the entrepreneurs who are like building companies and doing the work, whether it's in climate or it's in energy or it's in space or it's in transportation. Like there are people who are doing this work and their companies like have mailing lists, they have newsletters, you know, there's some YouTubers who are kind of creating content about this stuff, but we certainly need a whole hell of a lot more of it. If you were excited about the future and you're optimistic, like go start a podcast, go start a YouTube channel, like go start telling like kind of broadly kind of sharing the the work that you're excited about and things that are making you optimistic is like that's in short supply right now. And the more we can kind of promote like the optimistic versions of a lot of these technologies, like the better off we're all going to be as a society. Specifically with the fair now, like if somebody wants to support, like, I mean, I know you mentioned patrons, people getting involved. I participated in a session with, with, with you and a bunch of other people. That was amazing. So just like if somebody is just like, let's say they don't want to do this as like their full time thing, but they're just like, hey, I want to support in some way. What what can they go do? Yeah. So the for the fair, you know, I was like, there's kind of get into the into the funnel. You can follow me on Twitter um, at Cam or follow the fair, which is at World's Fair Co. And then that's kind of where we'll be kind of promoting opportunities to like get involved and follow along. Uh, we have a sub stack that we publish on a monthly basis now that's trying to become this kind of like channel for for optimism and hope but over the next kind of couple couple months as you kind of build out the founding team which uh, if you are a creative uh, or you have experience being a creative director or you are big on media and you know film film storytelling or on kind of community and events uh, please please get in touch because I'm looking for the the, the core kind of founding founding team here um, before we go start doing any of these much larger kind of experiences. Come get involved. Come help build the fair. If you don't want to do it full time, though, we have these creative sessions that that we run where we kind of ideate and imagine kind of what a what a fictional aspirational future might look like. And especially as we as we start designing this kind of immersive experience that we'll be opening eighteen to twenty four months from now, we need to design like what is that what does that world look like? What is the most optimistic possible like year twenty one hundred look like? You know, how do how do all the things like what what does it look like if everything goes right from the AI to the robotics to the city's movements to the policy like what kind of world could we find ourselves living in and uh, I, I invite you all to kind of come out and, and dream with us a little bit 
about the sort of future that that we might be able to build together. So, yeah, you're one of you're one of the most fun people to follow because it's always it's always cool stuff and like optimistic stuff like this. And actually, did you give out your Twitter handle? I'm definitely going to put it in the in the show notes. But I think you are are a very worthwhile follow if you feel that your feed is too full of doom and gloom. Can you know his feed is, yeah. is not so it's always yeah. refreshing yeah it's uh i'm at at uh cam Weese, so c-a-m-w-i-e-s-e and the objective with my twitter feed is to promote optimism and hope showcasing different projects that people are working on and kind of giving a little bit of, of a look behind the scenes with the with the world's fair project because uh, it's important to uh you know the journey the journey is what matters here the destination will be will be the most incredible thing that anyone alive has kind of stepped foot into but ultimately, like the fair can't exist in isolation, right? We have to create a, cult, a movement, uh, a cultural movement of, of progress and of a hopeful future um, in order for the fair to even be relevant. Like we have to desire these things. We have to be excited about the sort of world we'd be living in. And you now the goal in all this, you know, there's a lot of talk about like the big grand world's fair and the experiences. But at the end of the day, it's all about kind of finding, finding hope and awe in sort of the, the thinking about the world that we could be living in and then choosing to go step up and take responsibility for building it. Cause like, it's not going to, not going to build itself. So whether it's fair related things or, you know, optimism related things, like go build things, go build the future you want to live in. And if I can help with the fair, let me know. We'll make it happen. That is a quote right there. Go build the future you want to live in. Cam, this was awesome. We'll definitely you know, expect to have you back on as the vision gets, you know, closer and closer. And as you progress, I think this, these conversations are super important. I mean, if, if uh, you read the intro to this podcast, even it's, you know, it's basically about how do we stop doom scrolling and like start actually building solutions. And, you know, you were somebody I had in mind from like the day I started the show that I was like, I got to get you on and talk about what you're building because it's less even about what you're building. And I don't mean that in a in, a, in like a mean way or like that I don't value the fair. I do. But I mean, basically like you, what you're really building is a way for people to think about the future. And, and that is kind of like the real product here is like, how do we think about the future? Not in this like doom and gloom way, but more in like how good can it get if we, you know, just got our shit together, basically. <laughs> uh, the great Daniel Burnham the architect of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. He, he says he says this, um, make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans, aim high in hope and work. Remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will never die. But long after we are gone, we are a living thing asserting itself with ever growing insistency. Remember that our sons and grandsons are going to do things that would stagger us. Let your watchword be order and your beacon beauty. That's a great one to end on. Cam, thank you for coming on. Everybody go follow Cam on, on Twitter. Check out World's Fair Co. I think that's the handle, right, for uh, World's Fair on Twitter. Buy a poster. Go do a bunch of stuff. Join one of their chats. Uh, I, I personally did that, and it was amazing. It was just, it was like one of the highlights of that month in terms of fun discussions. And I'm lucky enough that I get to have a lot of them because of the podcast, but uh, that was super fun. So go check that out. And of course you can always support this podcast on fountain or any podcast 2.0 player. 
you can boost it if you found value in something, or you can stream sats, which is a way to basically give value for value. If you listen to two minutes of the podcast, it gives only two minutes worth of sats at a rate that you set. If you listen to 60 minutes of the podcast, you give 60 minutes worth of sats. And just like the previous episode, I'm going to set it up with Cam where he gets a portion of the sats that anybody contributes for this episode directly. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think of that feature. But so far, so good. I've only used it on one episode and it worked. So so let's, let's, let's see how it goes with this one. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show. See you next time, Cam. See ya. Thanks, man.